This episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate activist with the Sierra Club living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, we are bringing the light. And here we are at our season finale. Can you believe it? And we have a really special show in store for y'all. You know, we've been focusing the season on exploring how all different spiritual traditions approach our relationship to the climate crisis. And we've been trying to find guidance and wisdom in all those traditions about how to navigate these harrowing and really strange times. We know that climate justice is entwined with racial justice and that you can't have one without the other and that we in the climate movement really need to embrace that. This episode is so important to me because it takes a look at all these intersecting threads that connect racial inequality with the climate crisis. And I get to introduce you to a very dear friend who is a powerful leader in his community in Puerto Rico. But first, let's hear from one of our listeners. We have been putting out the call all season to y'all to share your reflections or prayers or passages that are special to you that have helped you face our troubled times. And this one is from our producer, Allison's brother, who actually lives in Puerto Rico. So we were especially happy to hear from him on this episode. Hello, my name is PJ Wilson. I'm a renewable energy advocate currently based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. This passage is one that helps remind me of the importance of being strong and stable. It's originally by someone named Betsy Rose. I learned it in yoga teacher training a few years ago. So here's how it goes. Standing like a tree with my roots dug down. Branches wide open, down comes the rain, down comes the sun, down comes the love to a heart that is open to be standing like a tree with my roots dug down. Branches wide open, down comes the rain, down comes the sun, down comes the love to a heart that is open to be standing like a tree with my roots dug down. That is beautiful, a great kind of visual for standing strong amidst the storms. Okay, Marianne, I am now taking you with me to Puerto Rico to meet Carlos Rodriguez. He's a community organizer who was born and raised there, but I actually met him when he was an evangelical pastor in North Carolina. We grew up running in the same church circles, but didn't meet until August 2016 at this really cool retreat for millennial influencers who grew up evangelical. It was called Prophets, Priests, and Poets and it focused on the intersection of refugees, racism, and the climate crisis. A year later, he was still a pastor at a big white evangelical church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was living there with his wife and his two sons, and in the process of adopting a daughter from Ethiopia. But, you know, there were Confederate flags flying all over, and he was beginning to realize that he didn't fit in with the white church that he was pastoring. But, you know, he had just published a book 
Um, and he was kind of, you know, in that space of, do I become sort of a, a thought leader spokesperson in the white evangelical community and go on the conference circuit and do all those kind of big, sexy things that you do in that space, become an influencer, essentially? Or do I take a different path? And then Hurricane Maria hits. And Carlos watches his homeland and his community and his family become victims of the climate crisis. And the racism that followed in terms of the government's aid response, and frankly, lack thereof. Wow, that must have been really painful and quite an identity crisis. I can't even imagine. Um, What did he do? He goes home. He really felt called to help. So he flies back into San Juan, and the view from the window just floored him. All the green is gone. You can just see the the brown from the trees, the tree trunks that are either standing with no leaves or on the floor. So the loss of green as I'm flying in, I, that's the first time I had a legitimate cry. I started to cry on the plane. And as, I, as we're landing, my friends who from North Carolina, from a place of privilege, they're not even sitting with me. It's almost like they could sense it. They're texting me as we're landing, like, are you okay? We looked outside the window, we're so sorry. Like they recognized that that was impactful for me. And then, I, and then I shot off my emotions for that whole first trip. Like, okay, it's go time. I'm here to help, to serve. And like, I'm not just Puerto Rican, like I'm proud to be Puerto Rican. I love my country. I love this island. I love my people. I didn't know how much I loved the land till that moment when I saw it like bare, and in pain, you could almost feel the groaning. And scripture talks about the groaning of the earth. And the groaning of the earth is sending a message. Romans, Apostle Paul talks about, it's sending a message to the sons of God, like rise up and do something. So I really had that sense of like the earth groaning and the pain. And then there's collective grief, right? That at that moment, I thought it was just a human thing. It was almost like the land had grief together with all the people. That is really powerful Anna Jane and it reminds me of something that I don't think either one of us expected but throughout this whole season grief has been a theme that almost all of our guests have come to and the need to actually step into it and learn what it has to teach you rather than uh, trying to push it away at arm's length what a powerful moment of grief Um, so there he is he's landed in Puerto Rico What does he do next? So Carlos really didn't have much of a plan. He just knew he felt called to go and to see how he could be of service. He first arrived with a team of seven people who were all eager to help, and they brought some water filters. So a lot of people were getting sick in Puerto Rico because of drinking um, the river water um, that was contaminated from human bodies, um, from dead animals, et cetera, et cetera. So the water filter was the entry point. That then opened up the doors for the Association of Doctors of Puerto Rico to start partnering with us. So we're going into different towns all over the island with the Association of Doctors. We're knocking on doors because we don't have a cell phone signal. There's no way to access anybody. So we're knocking on doors to ask people, do you need something? And there was so much more to do. The more time Carlos spent visiting with people on the ground, the more he became aware of the real needs of the community. Here's the water filter, which is we're going to give you clean water, but then oh, there's a lady that doesn't have her oxygen tank is about to run out. 
here's a doctor. Um, we were in the town of Utuado, which was officially, in terms of numbers, the one that was the most affected, the flooding, the loss of life, the loss of homes. And in the town of Utuado, we went to the home of a family that the father passed away during the storm. He was an elderly man. He assumed that the storm has passed. It was the eye of the storm. And he came out basically like celebrating, like we made it, it was so bad, but here we are. That was during the eye of the storm. It gets blue, like the sky, the sun comes out. And when the storm comes back on, he has a heart attack. He, he, he passes away. His family has to bring him downstairs because him and his wife lived upstairs. And they had to keep his body for, if, 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 it's not, if it wasn't three days, it was four. Um, so when I went to that family, this is now five weeks after the storm. Of course, they're still raw. They didn't just lose their father. They basically lost everything. I think for me, that was a moment where I realized that charity is not enough. It needs to be charity that becomes solidarity. How can this be now part of my story? Like your pain, your struggle now becomes part of my pain and struggle. Not me trying to be the savior. Here you go, let me solve this, which is impossible to solve because they just lost their father because of the storm. On top of that, they lost their home because of the storm. But how can this transform me and the team that was with me into how can we keep coming back? How can we think long-term? We're now dreaming not of 30 minutes for a photo op, but 30 years for the benefit of this community. So that was a real moment for me, seeing the loss of life, the loss of property, and then the challenge for me to not just do charity, but do solidarity. I think that's such a powerful insight and epiphany. This idea of solidarity, not just charity, is something that the climate movement has been wrestling with for a long time. How do we create long-term systemic change and not just a Band-Aid? And I've seen charity without solidarity a lot in mission work growing up. I went to the Dominican Republic, I went to Peru, I went to Mozambique, I went to Indonesia. And we would, you know, do little songs and dances teaching people about salvation and Jesus uh, while they were hungry and hurting and their societies were not supporting them. And so it just felt so hollow. Like, why would we be giving people a silly play and promising them eternal life when we're not helping them in their real lives right now? We're not giving them bread. But yeah, Carlos's nonprofit, Happy MPO, is just such a shining example of how to create solidarity and think for the long term. First, it was about getting people water filters. But since that initial push following the hurricane, he's shifted to tackling another problem, which is housing. Maria and Irma tore hundreds of thousands of roofs off of people's homes all over the island. Carlos said you'd see blue tarps flapping everywhere. And of course, the rain didn't stop once the storm passed. So how do we provide safety, roofing, um, doors, windows that lock, um, not just a roof, but a roof that can withstand another Category 5 storm? So that's how we then started to come on a monthly basis. The churches and the people and other organizations, non-Christian ones that were saying, who's on the ground? And they would see a Facebook Live video of mine or an Instagram post of mine. Oh, Carlos is on the ground. So let's partner with his organization. So different organizations that are to come with me on trips. And I, I, I'll, I'll bring anybody. If they want to help Puerto Rico, if they are not a burden to Puerto Rico, but a help to Puerto Rico, we're going to take you. Please come. 
I was really, really glad to take him up on this offer, and I encourage any of our listeners, um, if you want to organize a group and go down there, they still need a lot of help. And he was such a gracious host. He showed me all around his hometown, Vega Alta, which is about a half hour outside of San Juan. So traditionally, this was the town for all the workers, right? Mm, for the resort. He took me to our restaurant. Yeah, so this is Lin-Manuel's Miranda's family's business. This is Placita de Within. The food was incredible. Arepas de coco or tacos. So it's either with crab, octopus, He also invited chicken. me to his house for dinner with his family and cooked us this beautiful Puerto Rican meal. So Carlos's beautiful wife, Catherine, welcomed us in and introduced their adorable kids. Catherine is British and like as pale a white person as you've ever seen. So their two biological children are a mixture and their daughter is Ethiopian. So they literally have the kind of full spectrum of color in their family. And um, they're just beautiful people inside and out. Isabella, you want to meet some new friends? There's Anna Jane. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I was about to come up and tell you, but we have He comes down from being up on the rooftop where he was grilling. Yeah. Sure. It sounds wonderful. Do you like a drink? And the house is this gorgeous apartment that you can actually see the beach from. It's almost Mediterranean meets Puerto Rican feeling. It's very spacious and open, big windows, a really cute little dog running around. It was a very heavenly evening. You know, I think it showed me a couple of things about who he is as a person. Like, he's this amazing servant heart. He's a powerful leader. He's also a very devoted family man. Uh, he moved back um, to serve the community and also to be near his parents and his sisters. And, and family is just a core part of, of their family identity and also the cultural identity of a lot of Puerto Ricans. So over the next few days, we spent talking with Carlos and really got a sense for just the sheer passion this man has for the work that he's doing, to serve the people in his community, to serve Puerto Rico, who have been victims of the climate crisis and aren't getting the help they need from the U.S. government. And that really hit home for me when he took me to meet Doña Carmen and her husband Julio. Carlos and his team had recently replaced their roof. It's warmer. Oh, yeah. It had just rained when we got there, so it had that kind of clean, grassy, post-rain smell, and the sun was out, and they had a couple of cockatiels that were just tweeting at us the whole time. And they have this really cool big patio on the front yard, and all the windows are open. They're an older couple, and they're watching TV. You'll hear it in the background. So Doña Carmen is this tiny little woman with a walker and kind of a raspy voice. And she was just beaming at the sight of Carlos. Uh, my Spanish is not great, so Carlos translated for me. But even with the language barrier, the love um, and adoration was really obvious. Mi ángel que me hizo el techo en la terraza a mí. Ah, sí, eso es para ti. Verdad que sí, son muchachos. Con todos estos aguaceros, Carlos, nada. Nada. Ni aquí, frente, nada. She's so grateful that... So, she's on a walker because the water that was coming into her house, she fell, had an accident. He had a bacteria on his foot, again, because of the same thing. 
So we rebuilt, we did this brand new here and rebuilt the roofing down there so that they wouldn't get any leaks. She's just happy that there's no leaking in her house. Nada de agua. Nada. Pero perfecto, perfecto. This is short-term missions at its best. Esos niños cuando iban para su lunch y ellos regresaban a trabajar. Yeah, she's really celebrating the team that were here. It really was a phenomenal team. They worked so well. Like, this is high quality, well done. This is These are hurricane clamps. We use this on every structure that we build because this adds, like, 100 miles an hour that it can resist. So this will be here for a long time. When the hurricane was happening... Cuéntame lo del huracán para yo traducírselo. Mientras estaba el huracán, el agua y todo lo demás. When she was waking up in the middle of the sleep. And she's on her bed and she's putting her leg down. She realized that water was coming up to her knee in the middle of the storm. Yeah. They lost absolutely everything inside. Yeah. And they had a bit of a terrace here. There were two big trees here. And they all landed on the house. So electrical, telephone. They were, it was about a year and two months that they had nothing here. Water, electricity, nothing. So we get back in the car. So this is one of those cases, families, that we wouldn't have identified unless the neighbors told us. Because this area has, you know, as you can see around, some nicer... Yeah. So the people with means have recovered, but as you can see, they lost everything. So this was our first go at that house. You can see there's still more, much work to do the mm -hmm. gate and stuff but she is beyond excited that there's she has now a space in front that they can relax it's that tiny place yeah. three of them live in that so the daughter lives there too the daughter lives there um how many houses are you working on right now like rebuilt that we've done projects like that actual yeah. roofing 37 oh my god actual homes that we've been in it's been more than 300 because wow. sometimes it's just like they need new mattresses, they need a new kitchen, they need a water filtration system that we've installed. These are all like hardcore hurricane-proof houses. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it was a, a real-life example of what being vulnerable to the climate crisis feels like and how it affects and impacts people's real lives. And this is such a massive problem affecting Americans, in particular communities of color and lower income communities. I think we're also seeing how that intersects with things like COVID, where black and brown people are far more likely to die from COVID than white people, partially because they tend to live in more polluted areas. And the same is true with the climate crisis. You know, the people who are on the front lines who are vulnerable are impacted first and, and worst. And they don't have the luxury of denying the reality of climate change, as many Americans apparently do, because they're living it. That's just not an option in Puerto Rico. The storms that have come, climate crisis, we don't have a voice because being American citizens, an American colony, really, we don't have a voice to go to the UN and say, hey, let's present our case. Thousands of our people have died because of climate change. 
it's not just Maria or Irma. It's the fact that we're losing our beaches. Like there's areas 10 minutes from where we're sitting right now, where when I was a kid, we could go to the beach and now the ocean is like hitting houses. We're seeing the consequences, obviously. The week before you got here, we had the hottest week in December in the history since we've been able to measure heat index in Puerto Rico. So we're seeing it, we're experiencing it, we're paying the price for it. Um, and our and people are dying because of it. Our people are dying because of it, and we don't have a legitimate political voice because of our colony status to be able to speak about it and to be able to make some changes to it. Because wealthier countries don't want to provide resources and money to vulnerable countries yes. to help mitigate and adapt against climate change. Yes. Can you speak to just like, not only the political injustice of that, but I mean, for me, that is one of the biggest spiritual injustices of climate change is yes. the fact that the places like Puerto Rico and Tuvalu in Africa who did not create this problem are the ones who are experiencing it first. And these wealthy countries like the United States who did create the problem aren't helping them, even in the case of when it's their own citizens. Yeah, I mean, it's clear as a Christian, I can use this language, it's evil. I can use stronger language, it's demonic, right? Right now, the administration is basing its strategy on we don't believe in climate change. We are one of many of these small islands that are at the mercy of these bigger countries um, to not just deal with climate change because it will help us, but actually fund things that would save our coastline, that would help us you know, handle with these massive storms. So the frustration is real because of course we don't have a voice. I, I hate the concept of the voiceless. Let's raise our voice for the voiceless. No, we're not just, vo we're not voiceless. We have a voice. You're just not giving you, us your platforms. Hmm. So it's frustrating, obviously. It, it, not just frustration and anger, but then hopelessness, which is the worst part. Because hopelessness means we actually can't do anything about it. So let's stick to the charity part. And I'm part of that charity world, right? But. The illusion is if we just do that, it's enough. It's not enough because more storms will come. The sea is going to keep rising. I, I think the thing that has been the most evident for me personally the last year and a half, not just because of the Trump era, but because of being in Puerto Rico, living as a Puerto Rican is the reality, the strength, the cruelty of white supremacy. It really is a legitimate systemic evil that needs to be identified, addressed and exercised. Can you talk a little bit about how you've witnessed that or seen it kind of more in like, not just an esoteric theoretical way, but more yeah. in like a living way? Yeah. So being a pastor in North Carolina as a Puerto Rican, if I had the narrative that my congregation, which was mostly a white congregation, my congregation was part of the 81% white evangelical that voted for Trump, is the illusion of not believing in white supremacy or not benefiting from white supremacy and using brown and black bodies to validate that. You see, I have a pastor who's Puerto Rican, so I can't be that racist. But then when the pastor contradicts what the president is saying, the white rich dude who is the president, we're gonna believe what the president is saying, even though we know the pastor personally, even though he's led us spiritually, even though he's preaching from the gospel, even though, but still the president said Puerto Rico is fine, so we're not gonna support what you're doing. We're not gonna believe what you're saying. We're not gonna fund it. We're not gonna give to it. We're not gonna send our people to it. So that was really painful to have a congregation, people that I did life with, weddings, funerals, and everything else that wouldn't come, that wouldn't support, 
that stop believing, stop following, stop supporting. Um, and it was clearly like the white male had a superior narrative to mine. Whether it was real or not, that narrative was superior to mine. And for that to be a fact, like what the white old dude said is the truth, independently of the facts, independently of the images, independently of your testimony, independently of anything else. That's like, to me, what's the most clear side of white supremacy. Yeah. The white narrative is supreme, no matter what any other narrative is saying. Oh, that's such a, a hard story to hear, but it's so necessary to hear it. And, you know, Marianne, for me, that just speaks yet again to the power of narrative and the stories that we tell and how they create the world that we live in. The real and devastating consequences that can come from a false or bad narrative. Really, in this moment that we're in now, where we're talking about the movement for Black lives, we're talking about the many ways our country has failed our Black brothers and sisters, and really grappling with what Carlos just said about the white narrative and the narrative of white supremacy being the one that um, is is uh, really stifling our ability to solve these problems. And, you know, we have really had some incredible guests on this show, both this season and in prior seasons. I remember when we had Adrian Marie Brown on uh, talking about the power of science fiction to imagine different futures and better futures and combat racism and imagine a more equitable world. A lot of our conversations on the show have been about telling different stories. And, and this is a powerful reminder of the fact that the opposite is also true, that there are dangerous climate denying white supremacist stories out there um, that are a very real obstacle to tackling the climate crisis. Absolutely. And that played out in the aftermath of, of Maria in Puerto Rico. And the president, you know, he downplayed the extent of the devastation and the humanitarian aid needed on the island. And people on the mainland believed him. Federal agencies didn't prioritize emergency response or resources. Carlos said that Christian organizations were way less involved than they might be on other crises responses because their communities believed what the president was saying. And that had real impacts on people's lives. People died when they couldn't get medication or clean water or when homes collapsed on them. Stories have a very real power over us, whether we realize it or not. Well, and speaking of, of stories, you know, Carlos touched on this earlier, but just the sort of earthquake that he experienced when his former evangelical Christian North Carolina family basically wouldn't believe his version of events and, and wouldn't help him out. And yet he he remains an evangelical Christian. One different way of reacting to everything he experienced would have been to lose his faith, but he has kept it. And I'm curious about what he sees his faith offering about our relationship with the earth and with what what we do about climate change. Yeah, I asked him that very question, how he navigates the climate crisis in the context of his faith. Yeah, I navigated as a justice issue, a biblical justice issue. If you look at the specific healings of Jesus, more than anything else, he was healing leprosy because they're at the bottom of the bottom. So let's find, the, let's find the need, the current need that demands the most justice or demands at least the most intentional acts of justice to ignite all the other acts of justice. So I feel like climate change is that 
at the moment. It's like the earth has leprosy. And it is for the church to be intentional about attending to that very thing that needs healing. I feel if Jesus was around in 2020, that would be part of the list of things that we need to attend to. So you probably know this, but they did like a survey of where people feel closest to God. Yeah. And it's not in church. Mm-mm. It is in nature. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you have like a place like that here in Puerto Rico where yeah. you just kind of feel, what do they call it? The thin place where yeah. you just feel very connected yeah. to God and nature. It's a nine minute walk from where we're standing down to Cerro Gordo. It's a beach here. Um, almost every Sunday we go as a family in the afternoon, especially when the sun's coming down. Um, and half of the time, my brain is like, oh, I'm going to the beach, like the sand and having to deal with that and the three kids and getting them in. And every time I get in the water, there's just something that it's just like, it, it just works for me. It's a baptism. It, it, yes, thank you. And almost in that, even in that same way of just going back and just the salt water and kind of the weight of the water. It's more relaxing, right? Because it's really salty here. Um, and it's just, it, there's, I can't think of one time that I regretted going, that I didn't feel like be able to breathe, to connect with God, to be grateful for my family, for what we have, for what we're doing. There's a story that's really famous in the Gospels of a big storm. Jesus is sleeping through the storm, meaning he's Puerto Rican. He can sleep through anything. Um, He's good at taking a siesta. He's sleeping through the storm. The disciples are losing their brains about it. They're like super scared. And these are guys that half of them were fishermen, right? So they knew how to handle the storm. So it must have been a really bad storm. They wake up Jesus and Jesus stops the storm. So any narrative, and this is where I'll start now, as a Christian who's been a preacher, who is a preacher, who has been a church pastor, any narrative that would say that God uses nature to hurt people is disregarded and corrected by Jesus, who is the representation for us Christians of the Son of God. He doesn't start the storm, but he stops the storm. And that's an invitation for us as believers. Is there any way or context that we can stop the storm for other people? in terms of relating to climate change, then we should take responsibility for the sake of everybody else's lives on our boat, the ones who we are responsible for, to stand up and stop the storms. So Anna Jane, I have chills, like legitimate chills here about this idea that it's an invitation to think about how we can stop the storm for other people. And I feel like that goes back to the early part of the interview where Carlos talked about solidarity and not charity. Um, You know, there's that famous story of, of the people who are seeing folks drowning in the river and they're pulling folks out of the river. And then they suddenly realize, hey, wait, we should go upstream and stop whoever's throwing them into the river in the first place, you know, and, and, and thinking about our work on climate change as not charity, but solidarity as how can we stop the storm for other people? How, how can we do that? And especially in this moment when the movement for black lives is calling us all in to center racial justice in our work. Um, I feel like Carlos's story to me really gives a concrete 
tangible example, almost a parable, I guess, of really what that looks like to, to actually turn your love and compassion into action. Yeah, it brings to mind for me something that Reverend Yearwood said, and I know that Adrian Marie Brown has also talked about just the reality that a lot of people of color, a lot of black and brown and indigenous people, you know, they don't choose to become activists. It is what they're born into because they are so vulnerable. They're not activists, quote unquote. They're just protecting their lives and their families and their communities and through that have to engage in activism. And, you know, for Carlos, it was a similar experience. And I think those are lessons that we should all reflect on personally. You know, I mean, those of us who are white with our white privilege, um, we have those choices to make about how we're choosing to help and wh- how we're going about that work and, and who's at the center of it. Um, we, you know, whether that's rebuilding houses or marching or getting politically active. I hope this whole season has given folks a lot to think about in, in reflecting on the kind of the anchor and the center that you're starting from when you're embarking on that work. Yeah, me too. I, I've, I've learned so much. And I keep going back to that moment when Carlos is looking out the plane window for the first time he's gone back to Puerto Rico after the storm. And just thinking about all the work that needs to be done, that feeling of being overwhelmed, and how important his faith has been in shepherding his community through this really hard, stressful, rocky recovery phase. Again, in this moment that we're in for the movement for Black Lives, when we have this huge outpouring of people in the streets, there's going to come a time when that moment has passed and the long road ahead starts to really sink in for folks, as is the case with climate action. The burnout that happens as you realize that this is the work of a lifetime. And we have gotten a lot of great from Carlos and all of our other guests this season. I think a lot of great insights too on how to grapple with that, how spirituality, faith, silence can be a deep reservoir of strength. Reverend Yearwood talked about that. Kriti Kanko talked about that from a Buddhist perspective. Sherry Mitchell from a Native American perspective. Catherine Wilkinson from a, a sort of having left organized religion, but still needing that spiritual anchor in her in her work. So Carlos, the story that you both just shared, working against such incredible odds and such difficult circumstances and knowing that is what brings him strength is, I think, an important reminder to us all that there is something that we can tap into to keep going when things start to feel hard. Yeah, burnout is a very real thing. I've certainly uh, encountered it from time to time. And we're all just so inundated and overwhelmed with all these kind of converging crises every single day. And those feelings of being caught in a storm that we can't quiet is real. But I think back to what Reverend Yearwood said, we can be overwhelmed, but we can't be overcome. And this season has just been such a gift personally to explore all of the different faith and spiritual traditions and rituals and the lessons and how to think about the climate crisis and on all these intersecting crises and how to care for ourselves and to care for one another as we face it together. It has been a balm for my soul to be on this journey with you as someone who deals with my own running up to the edge of burnout on a more often basis than I would like to admit and has to take some steps back from the edge. Uh, this season has been a really big help to me personally. And I hope that our listeners also have 
gain some tools and some new insights that will help them in their work as well. Because as you have said, the storms in our country aren't going to quiet anytime soon. And we need everybody out there in it for the long haul, doing your best work rooted in a place of love. So thank you, Anna Jane, for going on this journey with me. Thank you to our listeners, our beloved listeners, for coming with us to bring the light on this season of No Place Like Home. Lord, I don't want to die in the storm. No, I don't want to die in the storm. Let the wind blow east, let the wind blow west. No, I don't want to die in the storm. My mother, she died in the storm. My mother, she died in the storm. Let the wind blow east, let the wind blow west. Lord, I don't want to die in the storm. Special thanks to my sister, Grace Joyner, for providing this beautiful rendition of the traditional folk song, I Don't Want to Die in the Storm. You can find all of her amazing music at gracejoiner.com. Thanks also to the band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson, and we are distributed by Critical Frequency. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It really helps get the word out and helps other people find our show. And join the conversation by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. We'll see you next season. And remember, there is no place like home. Let the wind blow east. Let the wind blow west. Lord, I don't want to die 